Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Julie Castro Abrams. She is leading a movement of women who invest in women-led companies and are transforming the venture landscape as a result. As the founder and CEO of How Women Lead, Julie is devoted to getting more women on public and private boards, and as the managing partner at How Women Invest, she has created a unique venture capital firm where thousands of women are investing in other women-founded companies with groundbreaking results. In this episode, Julie shares her perspective on the progress being made toward diversity in venture and on corporate boards the importance of a strong personal frame for oneself and for others, taking empowered action in the face of injustice, the hierarchy of philanthropy, and the inspiring movement of women who are investing in other women founders who in turn are creating successful businesses across a broad spectrum of industries from female focus to AI driven. This is an inspiring episode and one that I am sure many of us will learn from as it relates to the empowered action that we want to take as investors, making meaningful investments and taking that action out into the world, whether it's through our own endeavors, investing in others, and even the messages that we are giving our children. Hey, welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me. So good to have you. So you are going to be our our first woman guest on Real Wealth, Real Health for 2022. And I thought it was just so apropos because we're both very, very enthusiastic and mission-driven around women, women in business, and especially women in investing. But the the first question that I wanted to ask you to really kick it off is, is when, when did you know that you wanted to make it your life's mission to support women in business? It's a great question. And like a lot of things, you know, it, it had little, there are little sparks that happened along the way, but, but this is the upshot. I am a racial and gender justice activist. I am all of disrupting injustice. And so uh, I have a master's in social work. And when I was early in my career, I was looking at like, what is the lever for the greatest change and impact? And the first thing I really designed is a a strategy and a frame for myself around a strengths-based approach to poverty alleviation. And so what that means is, you know, somebody whose self-definition has been around, I'm a domestic violence survivor. If you can help her reset her frame on who she is in the world and reframe how people around her experience her, that actually has a massively transformative effect for people for how they reset who they are in the world. I actually started with, you know, a seven year stint working with low-income children at a music conservatory. 
the whole thing is like, you know, I've been living in public housing and the many cases I'm seeing somehow by that definition. Now I define myself as a violinist. It changes who you are in the world, right? right? And so, so the second big career effort I had was I ran a microfinance and microenterprise organization that helped over 6,000 low-income women start their own companies. And to me, that's the really the genesis. It's This is a poverty alleviation strategy that I focused on at that point in my life. Boy, the magic of getting to know these courageous entrepreneurs, seeing the changed how they're, how they could set up their lives, if you will. And, you know, and be able to influence the economy and the world around them with their values as front and center was something that was super amazing to me. Now, you know, we would do micro loans and help people with a couple of different financial products. But if somebody wanted to, had a company that could scale, I started looking around. And I'm like, there's nobody funding women entrepreneurs and forget it. If you're brown or black, you know, right. it's really brutal. And so after 11 years of running that certified development financial institution and helping all those women start their own companies, I just decided that another major lever was how do you activate all these kick-ass women, our first generation ever of having all these influencers, these women who are in the C-suite. We 30 years ago, the you would not have seen this structure, right? Or all these women who've met this level of operational expertise and wealth, et cetera. And activating them as investors to support this big gap in the market with working with women entrepreneurs. And everybody, it, it's, it's frankly, it's a lot of the same stuff. People love the courage and the creativity and being involved in something hopeful and exciting that an entrepreneur brings to the table. So long answer, but the upshot is it is a solution to so many things in our country. And right now, when you look at the the big issues of inequity we're looking at at the highest level, corporate board representation, women CEOs are you know, missing completely when you look at the you know Fortune 500, women in the C-suite, and then even pay equity the, and, and women's wealth. Those are all things that are a cycle. And what's happened in our country is by, because we only invest 2% of all venture dollars in women founders, we're not then having women IPO. We've only had 20 women ever IPO on the New York Stock Exchange in the history of our country. So we're not having these big wealth creation events. And then you're not having these women who then, because they exited that company, now they could be the CEO of Google. Like the whole pipeline is broken because we're not investing in women founders. And then you and I aren't getting products that we need. You know, there's so many things that are missing from the marketplace because we're not investing in them. Oh my gosh. There's so, there's so much that I want. I don't even know where to start, but I'm going to start with one of the first things you said, which, which is something that's so important to me, which has everything to do with the mindset or what I consider to be self-mastery and self-awareness. And I actually really want to dive into this piece because it sounded to me at least like one of the things that you're saying is the reframe, how we frame ourselves and then how we frame ourselves in relation to the world around us or to people around us. And I think it can be very controversial to say something like that somebody who's in poverty, it's their choice, right? And it's not their choice, but they're 
but there's something really important about helping them see themselves differently and helping them see opportunity. At least I believe, I believe this. I'd be curious, like to dive into that a little bit with you around like the power of reframing, which, which is an internal mechanism. And then what that does for them in the actions that they believe that they can take, because previously they might not, they might've just been over here saying, I can't do this. And in reality, they always could, but either somebody had to tell them or believe in them or show them the door. So I would be really curious to get your take on that. Well, first I would say that reframe is important for every single one of us. Mm-hmm. All of us carry around some comment, our parent or aunt or someone made when we were eight, that is, it, it no longer is true. And we continue to carry it with us as if it's a definition of who we are. We are not whatever we were defined as, as we, when we were kids. And, and I use that as an example, because every single one of us is in a constant journey to reframe and figure out who we are in the world so that people see us where we want to stand. I am different today than where I was 20 years ago and how I want people to react to me. I have a different way I present and a different set of things that are important to me. And so all of us need to be super attentive to what is our, our framework of who we are in the world. And, and then what do we, and what, what, what's people's reaction to us because of how we show up. So it's a poverty alleviation strategy, but for every single one of us, it's a transformation strategy. And so I wouldn't get we're all, you know, we're all on a spectrum of where we want to be in the world. Right. And so I don't, I don't think it's something for one group of people specifically. I think it's every single one of us. Yeah, I agree. I've definitely gone through a lot of, a lot of that myself constantly. And then when you see those things from your past and like, my question is always, is that true? And is it mine? Is that mine? Is that, do I really believe that about myself or am I just like carrying that forward? And then the exercise of, of seeing it and getting on, onto the other side of it is so it's very quick. Like it's not magic and and it's not like even subconscious reprogramming. It's just so much awareness and a choice to say, I'm going to show up differently. I believe myself to be differently. And then I think the most important piece of that is I'm going to act differently. Like I'm going to take the actual physical action to show that I mean it to myself. Yeah. And there's some things that I think of as pretty, they're, they're pretty powerful in our culture of how people respond to you. So, um, saying you're the CEO of your own company, it, people react to you in a certain way, because that's a power play. It's courageous. It's, it says strength. Mm -hmm. Um, Same with being a VC. So one of the things that we have done in my organization, we, I have a network of 60,000, ultimately 60,000 women are part of this network. Right. And a lot of them are, you know, I would say our target market in terms of age is about 45 to 65. We have people that on either end of the spectrum, certainly outliers, but that, that's sort of our major, major area of focus. And that's a moment of transition. It's called middle essence. A lot of us don't even know what happens in that life stage, but a lot of people are like, you know what? Life was vertical as I was a coordinator, then an associate, and then I was a you know manager, and then I was a director. Like you think that that's how life is until you're in your early mid forties. And then you're like, oh, like this is like, there's a, you know, I can create my entire, I can create a portfolio life. I, you know, I get right. to reframe and sometimes you're forced to have that reframe. A lot of people have a big, some disruption or re 
reset moment, right? And so of the women in our net, a lot of them are sure thinking, oh, I want to go on corporate boards, right? Well, when somebody said they invest in our venture firm, right? And then they go out in the world and they say, I'm an investor in venture. All of a sudden people treat them completely differently. And all of a sudden people are like, oh, would you go on my board? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you must know other VCs, therefore. And so, so there are these, it's just, it's just a critical sort of lever. If you think about that, that self-definition and really understanding it's a human need to be seen, to be valued. And, and, and the, the reaction of the universe, the world around us, people um, for however we put ourselves out there uh, can't be underestimated. And I'll say I'm a parent of two children and they're kick-ass. I mean, literally like one went to Harvard, the other one, you know, got violent performance degree at Oberlin and had also another academic degree and is killing it. And if people ask me, what'd you do as a parent? Well, one biologically it's the genetic lottery. They just, <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, uh, uh, we made good babies, but the one thing I say to people is it's that concept of a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's the one mm-hmm. parenting advice I'd give to anyone. If you say to your child, oh, this is, or, and, or they hear you, this is my lazy child, or this is my heart, my, my child that's really challenging. They hear it and it starts to become their self-definition. So in our lives, if we can give people that aspirational, hopeful, and positive thing to re- to define them as, like that's the biggest parenting thing I ever did. I said to my kids, they were the way I wanted them to be. I'm like, you're so organized. You're so kind. You're so responsible. You know, all those things that frame for them, you know, how, how I wanted them to see themselves. And I think it worked. So that anyway, there we go. You got parenting advice and you got, you know, how to become a, a corporate director all in one, all in one, all in one shot. No, I love it. I love it. I actually want Dan to chime in on, on this one. Cause I know that he's um, a soon to be father. So I'm curious what you think about this. And maybe even for yourself, we talk a lot about like how we grew up and who we thought we were and, and now who we are. So, yeah. Yeah, Julie, I have like a thousand questions, uh, parenting <laughs> questions that I, I need to get answered. We're, we're doing March. And so You're like quick. Yeah. Yeah. If you have <laughs> like, is, you can't screw it up very much in the first couple of years, they won't remember anyway. Just don't put them in a cage, you know? Yeah. That's, that's, that's the hope. It, it's becoming real now. We're doing March. And so it's, you know, it, we're, we're at the end. Yeah. We're at the end of the road here. And so you know, gearing up, putting the nursery together, what what have you. But yeah, it's a lot of, you know, we're having a, a boy, but it's a lot of, for me, trying to think about how do I frame this child to understand the world in a way that, you know, is good for them, but is also good for, you know, people generally. And I've read a lot about it. I've thought a lot about it, but it's a really hard thing uh, to actually implement. It's, it's, it's definitely one of those easier said than done. Uh, type of thing. It takes real so, discipline, right? Because you know, you think you come home to your home life, and you should be able to let your hair down. And it's like, yeah, but you gotta be careful what you say in front of your kids, because like, <laughs> like, you know, you you don't. You, they listen to everything. If they hear you talking to someone on the phone about them. It 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 plants a seed. Yeah, and, and I think like the the opposite holds true in that when you say positive things and you encourage effort, like you can create know someone who believes they can yeah. they can do anything right and the growth you know, mindset instead of a fixed mindset right um yeah it's not the outcome it's the process uh yeah i think that's exactly right and i i use this example with someone the the other week but you know when i was growing up you know i had an idea of kind of what 
my ceiling was like my age appropriate ceiling, right? Like you're 16 and this is what you should be doing on your 16 and you've done those things. And so you're successful. And I think once I left like the small suburban bubble that I lived in, I realized like those same like theoretical age limit restrictions, like don't really exist in the world. Right. And so when I think about, I remember there was a partner at the law firm I worked for and I remember her daughter was, was 14 years old and she was traveling by herself in Asia. And I thought like, what, like, I didn't even like get on a plane by myself until I was 20, you know, let alone, you know, traveling in a, in a, in another country across the world by myself. And then I thought like, well, why not? Right. Like, could I have figured it out when I was 14 and maybe, maybe not like, you know, probably good for the world. I didn't have to answer that question, but it just gets, gets me thinking that, you know, it, being a, a good parent and my definition of good parent means you really have to rethink the way that, you know, the world was taught to you, if that makes sense. Of course. Can I just tell you one definition of when I won? My son has a Bumble BFF little profile, right? Make, that's how you find friends, right? Because he moved here after he graduated from college. And his profile says vaccinated, Black Lives Matter, BLM ally, feminist. And I was like, done. <laughs> I did it. You know, <laughs> so, you know, I think it's sort of what are those core values of how you want your, your, your kids to show up in the world and you yourself, right? It's easy for us to slip. And especially in this pandemic where we all feel like poop about like the environment where, you know, the things we're missing out on. And, and I think it's that what well, we all know, you know, if you ever watch any, whatever those self-help things and stuff, you know, but it's like, who do I want to be today? How do I want to show up in the world today? And what am I grateful for? Like start off with that. Like that's the core. And, and to me, like the salve for all of us feeling sad in this pandemic is taking action on things that are important to us and aligned with our values and, and helping other people is one is literally the best way to me to feel better about yourself when you're in a tough situation. So how do you, how do you strike the balance between taking action on something that's important to you and not getting caught in the, the, the negativity, let's say. And here's what I mean, because in, from, from, I guess, an energetic perspective, you know, the, the, the law of energy flows where your attention goes. And so if we're placing so much attention of our time and then the, an, an emotional investment right into this is bad and this is wrong. How do you strike that balance between being like, you know, motivated or upset or activated by something and taking real action and not just not just being mired in the energetic of it and that, which only kind of contributes to it. Cause that doesn't lift anybody up by just like getting upset. Doesn't, doesn't help anybody. So I wonder, how do you find that balance? Well, I have to tell you, I think I strike it very differently now than I did three years ago. And, and because of the environment we're in, but mm. also age matters, you know, you're different life stages. You have different reactions. I'm a CEO. I have been my whole life, basically my whole career. I've almost, and, and the definition generally of a good CEO is somebody who's optimistic, who sees what's possible. So I always see what's possible. And I'm, I basically say, okay, have these three things that are issues that we're concerned about, where can I make the most impact and have the most, and then let's tackle that. Now, 
I had to stop watching the news. I, you know, right around the, frankly, the last election, there came a point where actually it was the previous, even, you know, when Trump was elected, I would watch the news and it was just, they had this music that was so like ridiculous. I don't know if you ever noticed that. And this like constant, like, it's a crisis that, he, you know, right. Trump said something stupid, you know, and it's to me, like I had to shut that off because I was going into this place. It was causing me anxiety. And so I, you know, I really limit my media exposure and I don't, I, you know, I am, I'm a glass half full person and I married someone 30 years ago who is a little glass half empty and it's a good, we're opposites and it's a good thing, but there are times where I'm like, I can't hear any more of the reasons why this, the negative stuff. And I know it escalates with him when he's having some kind of anxiety about what's about to happen. Right. Um, like before we go on a trip, I get all the, what if this happens? What if there's a tsunami? And like, I'm always like, there'll never be a tsunami. And then this week there's a tsunami, but so, but, but I'm probably over index on the optimism, you know, and, and it's good to have a balancing act in my life, but I can't hang out watching the news. Cause that'll, I got to solve problems. That makes yeah. me happy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're, you're solving like a few different ones through well, how women lead, then there's how women invest and then how women give. So on the, on the, how women lead, which was, I, I believe the, the beginnings of it, the, you're really focused on women in boards. And I know when I joined, when I first, it was actually my first time even thinking about oh, could I be on a board? And my answer to myself was, oh no, goodness. No, I could never do that. I was, oh, not me. I'm not this enough or that enough or whatever. And I'm not enough in all the different, in all the different ways. So why is it imperative that women get on boards? And like, what are some of the changes and results that have come from women being on boards? Yeah. So the public company boards, there's public company boards and private company boards and a couple iterations of them, right? When a company goes public, you basically are selling the company to the public. You are now saying the ownership of this company will be a collective public ownership. Now that's not how most people think of it, but that is the truth. And in so much that a board is the is leading and governing and, and setting the direction of that company, if you only have one type of perspective represented on that board in a public company, one, it's it's just unacceptable. It's also super dangerous. If you remember Enron and some other major disasters we've had in the history of this country with governance, it's really that group think. It's we get lazy when we're around, when we're in a group of people that are all like us and people are on those boards for seven to 10 years. So think about how easy it is to get complacent when you're like, oh, you know what? Adapia always reads all the materials. I'm just going to, I I can skip it this time. And then you skip reading the materials, the next board meeting. And you know, that's what people end up doing on some boards. And it's, it's, it's dangerous. It causes, it does not protect the people, the public. And so one of the, after years of research, it became really obvious that diversity on a board or in any group, up games everybody else. If we have very different approaches, I when I come to a meeting, I'm going to do my homework because 
I know I represent my perspective and I don't want to be, I don't want to, I, I can't like, you know, rely on this person who's compl- very different than me. Right. But if you're all the same kind of person, uh, that's when the problem comes in. So it upgames everybody's performance, uh, but there's some actual things that happen. Their product recalls happen three times faster when you have a diverse board. People can die if you don't recall products and you certainly can screw up a company. You have better pay equity in companies where you have a diverse board. State Street, which is one of our biggest asset management firms in the country, they they invest in companies that go public, take half the public offering, right? They've come out and said, culture is far outweighs any other physical assets in our public companies. And in a diverse board, is going to have different set of questions and, and accountabilities around culture. And that really is getting to the bottom line of corporate value. All those building blocks reinforce what we know, which is about 26%, you get 26% better returns in companies that have diverse boards over time. So better financial performance, better protection for the company, less crisis crises, and better accountability because the board's paying more attention. Wow. Yeah. And how many, how many women have gone through your programs for, for board readiness? Well, we have a couple of different things we offer a board readiness training for us is a four to five session intense, really, you know, getting into action, getting on a board. We've had about 800 people who have gone through that in the last number of years, but you know, I think you attended our get on board week where we have, you know, you can go to something for an hour or two. You can learn about the different committees on a board. You can learn about the hot topics. So I think we've had probably about 14,000 people who have gone through something related to boards for us, with us. That's incredible. I'm kind of curious to hear from, from Daniel, when you were doing um, your venture work, how many women were involved at the venture level in the companies that you represented? Not a ton, you know, particularly at very early stage companies. Like we were talking about this before we started recording. And, you know, when you go to these like tech networking events, they're 95% plus men, you know, that's just how it's always, you know, always been. And I think it's obviously changing because of like the work that's being done by, by people like you, Julie, but that's kind of how it's, it's always been. And when I think about, you know, my clients, my early stage venture clients, you know, most of them were, were males. Right. And then even, you know, if I, I go back to before I was doing venture work, when I was a capital markets attorney, working on a lot of like public financing deals, like IPOs, for example, you know, the vast majority of the C-suite and boards are, are not just male dominated, but white male dominated. And that's just how, how it's always been. Right. And I think what you're seeing now is this very much needed you know, change that says, hey, it's not just a matter of creating diversity for the sake of diversity, but there's an actual strategic, you know, value proposition to, to be had here. And so it's, it's a really exciting time. It's exciting, but it's also interesting if you really take a, take apart like human behavior. I just talked about like how, you know, when you have group think on a board, it's way more fun because, you know, I don't have to do as much homework. I don't have to like, you know, get my back up, you know, to really be as so intense. And it's also like, we understand each other. We're the same type of person. That's super fun. 
it takes more work to manage governance well, but that's the same adventure. It's the same thing. You know, it's a very private, it's a private, this is, these are private dollars generally. Sometimes it comes from a public source, but, and, and I think generally it's been like, it's easier to make decisions and to go fast. And it's more fun adventure if we just invest it, you know, if the team is people who are all like each other and, and we invest in people that we understand, it's more work to have a diverse team making, you know, more thoughtful decisions with different points of view. And it's much more difficult to, you know, invest in people who are not exactly like you to be able to evaluate whether they're going to do a good job. And so a lot of this is just human behavior. It's not like somebody's sitting around saying, we don't want to invest in women entrepreneurs because we want to keep them out. You know, I think, I think most of the men in venture, they're like, well, this is what I know how to do. And that that's true, right? Like, do they know how to evaluate, you know, companies run by, you know, black and brown women? The truth is they've proven that they don't, or they have insecurity around it, or somehow they, they aren't seeing what the market sees, which is women run companies and especially women of color and black women return more for their investors than anybody else. And Morgan Stanley said, we're leaving $4.4 trillion that could be earned for limited partners, the investors and venture funds. We're leaving it on the table because we're not investing in women founders. So it's kind of like the, you know, the sharing economy, like the investments in Airbnb, et cetera, right? Everyone sort of understood it and started investing in that space big blue ocean opportunity, right? It totally created a whole new market. Well, women run companies in many ways are this big open, you know, blue ocean of opportunity, but you have to understand how do you evaluate them? How do you find them? People will say, we can't find women who are running high-tech companies. I'm like, I saw 400 of them in just the last 12 months, but, but you have to, you have to wreck Some of them are doing uh, the most cutting edge, cool climate related stuff, et cetera. And some of them are solving problems for women. We invested in a company in the menopause space. My guess is a lot of the guy investors don't even know how to think about it, let alone evaluate the, the product or the, or the leader of that organization. Yeah. And, and that actually brings me to, to my, my next set of questions, which is like, what inspired you to start your own venture fund? And can you talk a little bit more about what its mandate is? Cause it's very different than any other venture fund. And, and just so that everyone knows I am an LP in the second fund. I only met you after you closed the first fund. So I was able to get into fund two, but would love for you to talk about how women invest. You got it. Well, first and foremost, um, the inequity, combine, you know, of only 2% of venture dollars going to women founded companies to the big financial opportunity to invest because they make more money and the, other, the competition isn't as high to make those investments because they're not being invested in by a lot of the traditional venture. But also this lever of women like Adapia, people who have worked hard their whole careers and they, they, they look up and they've never been invited to invest in venture. Most of the women that are investing in our fund, they literally say to me, I've worked with VCs for 20 years and no one's ever invited me to invest. So frankly, it's a convergence of opportunity. We have more women who have wealth, who have operational expertise at high levels and they're, they just, they've never been invited. And so to me, it's like, Hey, I've got a blue ocean of limited partners I can, and investors I can invite and a blue ocean of these women entrepreneurs boy, are we going to win? How women invest the venture firm is committed to, we only invest in companies founded by women and run by women. 
we don't invest in male, female co-founder co-founding teams. And that's our biggest differentiator. The other thing that's really, really cool about us is because of who our investors are, women and women of color, 70% of the deals we have seen are companies run by non-white women. Like that's huge. And we've 50% of our investments are in companies run by women of color. So this is, it's, our numbers are staggering and our LP base is also staggering. We might have the largest number of black women limited partners in any fund in the country, as far as we can tell. And, and women feel safe. They feel seen. They feel like they were invited. They feel like they see other people who are like them. They feel like we're, it's aligned with their values. So, so we're having a lot of fun and a lot of success, I think, because of how we've structured the fund. And we yeah. really leverage these operators to send us great deal flow because they know people starting companies. And then when we go to evaluate them, we've got so much expertise. We never have a problem with finding the geneticist or the, you know, the climate person or, you know, expert or the, whatever it is, the lithium battery expert. So we can find people to evaluate these companies. And then our, our limited partners will take the board representation uh, on behalf of the fund. So, so it's really great for, for the women who are involved on both sides of the, the equation. Well, congratulations. That's, that's remarkable. I didn't know about the, the women of color as LPs. I think that's just phenomenal. I think one of the things that I noticed too, with a lot of women, I speak to a lot of women who want to invest in alpha, which is more real estate, but in general, even some just kind of out there when I'm having conversations with women, there's a lot of self-doubt about one's ability or knowledge or, you know, I can't be an investor because I don't know. I don't understand. I don't know math. Like you really, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, why do you think in your experience and from speaking to women, what is it that, that is like still causing this, uh, this self-doubt around being investors or, you know, like the access is there, right? Once they meet you or they meet me or they meet anyone, it's the, the doors get open. And then the next step, what's that next step for them? And how do we overcome that? I mean, there's a cultural thing that's sort of uh, one, I think, listen, my son does this too. Like, you know, doing something new. A lot of us have imposter syndrome, right? So, so it's a little more indexed on for women, but you know, I I think it's a human condition, right? When you're doing something new with people, you with something that seems like a stretch, but that said, I think culturally we've kind of told women that they don't fit the venture mode that they are not, you know, it, 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 it just the cultural reinforcement of things like your math skills, right. You know, the other thing is venture is they've got all these words that make it seem very intimidating. So, you know, there's a concept of being an accredited investor. Well, if you've never heard that word before, you're like, oh, where do I get accredited? Right. What? I mean, that's like, nobody, nobody needs to accredit you. Like literally the definition, there's a definition about you have to make a certain amount of money every, you know, for the last two years in a row, you know, or have some assets. Right. But just that alone, a lot of people will say to me, oh, well, you know, I don't think I'm an accredited investor, so I can't. And it's like, well, do you know what it is? So there's a lots of lingo in venture that I think is quite intimidating for people. 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's a really good point. Yeah. It's the, the language and uh, new terms. There's also a lot of acronyms and in the investment industry, whether it's venture or real estate, there's like all these acronyms and then all these like numbers and all the different ways you can like, you know, quantify returns, et cetera, which, which can, you know, it can be overwhelming. I, I feel like, you know, for, for, for anyone really like men too, it's that there's that learning curve, as you said. And then once, once you get over it, it doesn't take that long. And then it's like anything else. Like, even as we get older, it, it's not like we can't still learn new things. And it's so exciting to participate. I really love participating in, in the growth of anything really, but, but to know, and you told me this, Maimonides, and I would love for you to, to, to tell people what that is, because I had never heard of this before. And it just, it just hit me. It just went inside of me so strongly. And I would love for you to, to, to talk about that because it's like, there's always a question, I think in all of us to some degree, especially once we get to a point where we're okay with ourselves is what can I do to help others? Yeah. Well, okay. So Maimonides is a philosopher from 2000 years ago, Jewish philosopher. And there's a, it's kind of got a, the concept is a hierarchy of philanthropy or charity, right? So first level. And, and when you, when you ask, when you ask people, like if you're on a nonprofit board or something, when you ask people to donate, this is what you want to keep in mind, but it, it's sort of uh, it's a good life frame, right? First people give the first level of charity is people will give because they get the KQED little, you know, earthquake preparedness kit or whatever that giveaway is you get something in return. Another level is like, Oh, I get to be around cool people. So I get to go to the cocktail, but you know, I I may not take anything away except I got access and identity. Another is like, I put my name on the building, right? So you're kind of moving up this philanthropic level of impact, right? You give and you give big, but you get your name on something. The next level, if you think about it is, you know, I give anonymously. I don't ask for any recognition. I, that I'm not asking for that. That's sort of a maturation in your philanthropic giving and activity. But the highest level of of charity or philanthropy, according to this philosopher, and I really believe this, is you take someone on as a business partner. The concept is once, once we're in business together, it's not just I taught you to fish. That's part of it. But I'm sharing the experience, the ownership and partnering with you. So if you think about investing in, in, in women founded companies in many ways, it's, it's not charity. My venture firm is a, it's a serious, like, you know, venture firm, but in many ways, like we're taking people on as a business partner. We're literally saying, I believe in you and I trust you. I'm going to invest my hard-earned dollars or other, you know, collective resources because I believe in you. What a huge thing to tell somebody, like how transformational is that? It's, it's, it's a biggie. Yeah. And it goes back to that frame that we talked about in the beginning, which is you get to frame yourself and I'm participating in this big reframe for you to now I am a CEO. I am doing this. I'm doing that. And knowing that you have people behind you that believe in you, not just with money, because everyone who raises capital knows or should know that you want smart money. So people that are not just giving, you know, just giving you money, but they really want to see you grow and participate. So I love that because it comes back into the, the frame, especially for people in groups that are marginalized from yes. venture. Yeah. And I just, yeah, we have a class about angel adventure investing and it demystifies all the words and stuff. 
but I think what everybody experiences with us is we have a low entry point for investing. It's not a lot of money in, in reality. It's, you know, 10% at best of what most venture firms ask is a minimum investment amount. So it's kind of an easy yes for a lot of people. And what they find, even if they don't go do that, that the classes, right, is all of a sudden they build their confidence. They're like, wait, this is not rocket science. I get this. And then 30% of the people who invested with us for the first time ever have invested in other venture firms as a result of their confidence building and engaging with us. And this is what my subversive trick is, is I'm giving them a set of questions to ask all of those other venture firms. So they're going to them and saying, how many women uh, CEOs do you have in your portfolio? Well, of the 50 top venture firms in the United States, a large percentage of them have zero. And the largest number that I've seen is seven. Imagine. Wow. Like most of them have a couple. And so, you know, the seven is kind of an outlier. So it's important for, we got, we got to see this change and we'll all make more money as a result. How about that? Women hire six times more women in their companies than, than male run male founded companies. And we're going to need that now more than ever. I, I sure believe do. it's still after the, the pandemic that a yeah. lot of women were the ones that still haven't gone back to work. They, they took that step back. And the thing is that Abia, you and I are in this space where it's like, we want more women to invest. Absolutely. So it's not like we're taking money away from anybody else. I want to grow this pie. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to bring, I want to make a lot of money for women mm-hmm. so that the women invest, make money, have exits, and then have even more money to invest. And one, one of our founders just invested in our second fund. And to me, that's like, I love that. Yes. Right. Yeah. And she's Latina. And that's that to me that it just reinforces is a reinforcement of that sort of mindset of that culture, you know, her culture of community as opposed to individualistic, right. That collective collectivist approach. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so amazing. That's, that's a, that's a great story. I'm so happy to to hear that. So I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, and this is a question that we ask all our guests and that is what does wealth mean to you? Okay. Well, I started this podcast saying I'm a social worker by training. So Mm -hmm. uh, to me, wealth is I have enough resources that I can make the change I want to see in the world, that I have enough personal safety, like that my, you know, that my, I, I personally have, you know, the, the bottom of my pyramid is taken care of my place to live and plenty of resources. And, and I, and I can see it into a little bit into the future, but I give 20% of my income away as in donations. Cause that's what I believe in. So there, and I'm older than, you, you know, I, you know, I'm at a life stage. My kids are not, I'm not about to have a baby, Daniel. I'm, I'm done. My kids have jobs. So I am, I'm at a life stage when I can do that. So to me, the more money I make, the more impact I can have in the world, whether it's reinvesting in, you know, companies that I believe in or other kinds of social change I want to see in the world. So that's what it means to me. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and having this such a wonderful conversation. Just thank you for your time. I know you're so busy with all your endeavors and thank you so much for everything that you do in the world for everyone, because it's not just for women, you know, women are the primary recipients, but it's literally for everybody. So thank you for just for being you and doing everything that you do. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. 
We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.